Chapter 7 of Wandle the Invader by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 7. In the midst of the chaos I was aware that all the remaining discs struck us upon the port stern quarter. The broken dome of the stern showed a jagged hole, but the upsliding cross bulkhead partially shut it off. Two or three of the crew and the stern lookout were gone behind that closing bulkhead. Their bodies in a moment would be blown into space. It may hold, Drac. Order Waters out of his cubby. Forward. I was calling the engine room. Order your men up by the bow, not the stern. But I got no answer from the engine chief. I raised Grantline. Order your men forward. Clear amidships. I want to close the central bulkheads. If the stern one breaks with the pressure... Right, Greg. Are we lost? God knows. We'll know in a minute or two. Get all your men into their spacesuits. Keep in the bow. Prepare the exit port there. Right, Greg. You coming down? Yes. When I finish. I cut him off. Drac, get out of here. Did you order Waters forward? He won't leave. Why the hell not? He thinks he may be able to get communication with Earth. He can't stay where he is. There's no protection up here. When that stern bulkhead goes... It was breaking. I could see it bending sternward under the pressure. And at best it was leaking air, so that the decks were a rush of wind. Already Drac and I were gasping with the lowered pressure. Drac, get out of here. Go get Waters. Bring him forward. The hell with his transmitter. This is life or death. But you... I'm coming down. From the forward deck, call the whole control rooms. Order everybody forward and to the deck. What about the pressure pumps? I can keep them going from here. I set the circulating system to guide the fresh air forward, but it was futile against the sucking rush of wind toward the stern. As the pumps speeded up, I saw, with the little added pressure, the great cross panel of the stern bulkhead straining harder. It would go in a moment. Drac was clinging to me. Tell me what to do. I've told you what to do. I shoved him to the catwalk. Get out of here, get waters forward, get the men out of the hull. His anguished eyes stared at me, then he turned and ran forward on the catwalk. I saw him forcibly dragging the bald-headed waters from the helio cubby. It was the last time I ever saw either of them. A buzzer was ringing in the turret, and I plunged back for it. The exertion put a band of pain across my chest, a panting constriction from the lowering pressure. Fanning, assistant engineer, was still at the pressure pumps. His voice came up. Pumps and renewers working. Will you use the gravity shifters? Hell no. Get out of there, Fanning. We're smashed. Air going. It's a matter of minutes. Abandoning ship. Get forward! Suddenly the stern bulkhead cracked with a great diagonal rift. I waited a moment to give them all time to get forward, then I slid all the cross midship bulkheads. It was barely in time. The stern bulkhead went out with a gale of wind, but the barrier midships stemmed it. Half of the vessel sternward was devoid of air, but here in the bow we could last a little longer. 
Beneath me I could see Grantline's men, some of them, not all, and a few of the stewards, crew, and officers crowding the deck, donning spacesuits. The two side chambers were ready, half a dozen men crowded into each of them. The deck doors slid closed. The outer ports opened. Helmeted, goggled, bloated figures were blown by the outgoing air from the chamber into space. Then the outer slides went closed. The pumps filled up the chambers, the deck doors opened again. Another batch of men. I saw Grantline, suited but with his helmet off, dashing from one side of the deck to the other, commanding the abandonment. The central bulkhead seemed momentarily holding. Then, little red lights in the panel board before me showed where in the hull corridors the doors were leaking, cracking, giving away, breaking under the strain. The whole ribbed framework of the vessel was strained and slewed. The bulkhead sides no longer set true in the casements. Air was whining everywhere and pulling sternward. It was the last stand. I was aware that the alarm siren had ceased. There was a sudden stillness, with only the shouts of the remaining men at the exit ports mingling with the whine of the wind and the roaring in my head. I felt detached, far away. My senses were reeling. I staggered to the gauges of the errant system, the system whereby an oscillating current, circling within the double-shelled walls of hull and dome, absorbed into negative energy much of the interior pressure. The main walls of the vessel were straining outward. The Comitara could collapse at any moment. I started for the catwalk door. The electro-telescope stood near it, and I yielded to a vague desire to gaze into the eyepiece. The instrument was still operative. I swept it sternward. The enemy ship had not vanished. By what strange means, I cannot say, its velocity had been checked. A few thousand miles from us, it was making a narrow, close-angled turn. Coming back? I thought so. I suddenly realized my intention of having all the gravity plates in neutral before abandoning the ship. I seized the controls now. An agony of fear was upon me that the shifting valves would fail, but they did not. The plates slid haltingly, reluctantly. I recall staggering to the catwalk. It seemed that the central bulkhead was breaking. There were fallen figures on the deck beneath me. I stumbled against the body of a man who had tangled himself in the stays of the ladder rail and was hanging there. I think I fell the last ten feet to the deck. The roaring in my ears, the bands tightening about my chest encompassed all the world. Then I was on my feet again, and I stumbled over another body. It was garbed in a spacesuit with the helmet beside it. I stripped it of the suit. I was panting, with all the world whirling in a daze, bursting spots of light before my eyes. Ten feet away down the deck was the opened door of the pressure chamber. A bloated figure came into my dreamlike vista, moving for the pressure door. It turned, saw me, came leaping and bent over me. I saw behind the visor that it was Grantline. His bloated, gloved hands helped me don my suit. He helped me with my helmet. The metal tip on Grantline's gloved hand touched the contact plate on my shoulder. 
His voice sounded from the tiny autophone grid within my helmet. Greg, thank God I found you, all right? Yes. My head was clearing. I've got the chamber ready. We're the last, Greg. I gripped his shoulder. You're sure there's nobody else? No. I've been everywhere I could reach. The central bulkheads are almost gone. He pushed me into the pressure chamber. There was hardly need to close the door after us. I stood gripping him as he opened the small outer slides. The abyss was at our feet. The outgoing wind tore at us like a gale, so that we stood gripping the casements. Thank God you've got a power suit, Greg. So have I. We must keep together. Yes. I could feel the floor grid of the chamber shuddering beneath my feet. The Kamatara was cracking, bursting outward throughout her length. At any instant she might collapse. For a moment we stood poised. Beneath us, here at the brink, were millions upon millions of miles of emptiness, the remote, unfathomable void, blazing worlds down there in the black darkness. Goodbye, Greg. It may be the end for us. Good luck, Johnny. His bloated figure dropped away from me. I waited just an instant, and then I dove into space. For a moment there was a chaos of strangeness, the wrench to my sense of the transition. I had been the inhabitant of a little world, the Kamatara, with a gravity beneath my feet. Now, in a breath, I had no world to inhabit. I was alone in space. No gravity, nothing solid to touch, emptiness. I was in a world to myself, and the abnormality of it brought a mental shock. But in a moment, the adjustment came. I passed the transition, the sense of falling. The firmament steadied and my senses cleared. My dive from the Kamatara carried me in a slow arc some three hundred feet away. There had been a sense of falling, but no actual fall. My velocity was retarded, with the mass of the Kamatara pulling at me. I went like a toy boat in water shoved by a child quickly slowing. In a few moments, the velocity was gone, and I hung poised. I saw Grantline's bloated form not over fifty feet from me. He waved an arm at me. Out here in the void I lay weightless, as though upon an infinitely soft featherbed. I could kick, flounder, but not endow myself with motion. I craned my neck, gazed around through the bulging visor pane. The earth and the sun hung level with the white star dots strewn everywhere. I could not see that unknown light beam from greater New York. It was shafting out now in the other direction so that the earth hid it from me. Venus was visible to one side of the sun. The enemy light stream from Grebhar was apparent and as I turned my body and bent double to look behind me, I saw Mars and the sword-like ray from Ferrick Shan. The beams streamed off like the radiance of the Milky Way, faintly luminous but seemingly visible for an infinite distance. The Kamatara was obviously falling now toward the moon, drawn irresistibly, and all of us with her, toward the lunar surface. It seemed so close, that black-and-white mountainous disk, 
We were, I suppose, some twenty thousand miles from it, gathering speed as it pulled at us. But that motion was not apparent now. Distance dwindled all these celestial motions, so that all the firmament seemed frozen into immobility. But there was some motion. Twenty or more bloated figures, the survivors from the wreck of the Kamatara, were encircling it in varying orbits, revolving around it like tiny satellites. Some were closing in, drawn against it. I saw one plunge against the wrecked dome and begin crawling like a fly. And I found that the forces of the firmament were molding my orbit also. My outward plunge was checked. I poised for an indeterminate instant, and then I took my orbit. I, too, was a satellite of the Kamatara. I gazed at the wreck of the Kamatara. My ship, my first command. So smoothly, confidently rising from the earth only a few hours ago, and she had come to this. She lay askew in the heavens. The dome was cracked throughout all its length and smashed like a shell at the stern tip. I could see the interior litter beneath the dome, the twisted and strained lines of the hull. A dead ship now, the mechanism stilled, dead and silent inside, with all the warmth gone out of it. All the air dissipated, so that in every cubby, every dark corridor of that broken hull, there was the coldness and silence of interplanetary space. I suppose these thoughts swept me within a few seconds. I saw myself starting to revolve in my orbit. Perhaps my motion would carry me around indefinitely, or I might be drawn down to the vessel as those other survivors had been drawn. Grantline, with one of the few power suits, was coming toward me now, with tiny fluorescent streams back along his body from his shoulder blades. I switched on my own mechanism. It moved me toward him, and our gravity attracted us. We shut off the power when twenty feet apart, drifted together, contacted, bounced apart like rubber balls as our inflated suit struck. Then in a moment we had drifted back and clung. I touched the metal plate of his shoulder. Working all right? Yes. Thank God for this much, Greg. I wonder how many are alive. In the chaos of the abandonment, many of the men's air mechanisms had failed to operate. It is always so in times of disaster. We could see, revolving around the wreck and motionless against its dome, those horrible flabby, deflated suits where the delicate errant's mechanism had failed. Within was only a corpse. Too many, I said, and not more than four or five of us with power. What shall we do first? Round them up? We must all get together. His answering voice was grim. We can tow them from the wreck. Six or seven of us altogether have power. Do you suppose we can get away, Greg? Get loose from the ship before she falls? Only trying it could tell us that. The Kamatara and all of us with her were plunging for the moon. We would seek out the men who were alive and tow them in a string. 
If we could break the gravity pull of the ship and then struggle upward from the moon, we could maintain ourselves here in space until some rescue ship from Earth, Venus, or Mars would come and pick us up. You take one side, Greg. I'll take the other. Don't go aboard. She might collapse. I'll pick up the men without power and alive. The others with power suits will do the same. Then we'll meet out here, about where we are now? Yes. And hurry, Greg. Every mile toward the moon makes it that much harder. We're falling fast. Good luck. I shoved away from him. And within a minute, as he went in an arc toward the Kamatara bow and I toward her stern, I suddenly thought of that returning enemy vessel. My last look through the scope had shown that she was returning, and then I had forgotten it. My gaze swept the firmament now. I had no scope instruments within the helmet. With the naked eye, the enemy ship was not in sight. But I knew that meant little. Within a moment she could come in view and be here if she were going at any great velocity. There were on the Kamatara at the time of the disaster some sixty-odd men, perhaps forty had gotten away. And I could see very soon that not more than fifteen or less out here were alive. Two with power were ahead of me now, slowly floating past the wrecked dome of the stern. One had picked up two others, found them alive, and was towing them out. They went past me, moving very slowly so that I could see that two were all that one of us could tow and attain any velocity at all. I contacted with the leader. He was one of Grantline's men. Two or three hundred feet out, I directed. I gestured. Grantline said to meet out there. I'll tow others. Yes. Around the stern you'll find... God! Haljan, look! A mile from us the enemy ship was in view, passing, no, stopping. With incredible retardation she had plunged into view, was here, and yet had no great forward velocity. She seemed no more rapid than a great airliner winging past, so close that her reddish-tinged bulging hull length showed clearly. The discs were gone. The funnel set on top of her was sloped diagonally toward us as she rolled on her side, so that momentarily I could see down into it. There was some mechanism down there. The bow radiance was a narrow, opalescent beam in advance of the bow. Slowing, Haljan. Yes, stopping. Don't try to meet Grantline. Tow your men away. Or should we board the Kamatara and hide? No. They've come back to bombard her. I kicked at him violently. With his two drifting figures clinging behind, he swung past me. I headed behind the stern. Upon its dangling framework several of our men were glued, lying there inert. I caught a glimpse of the interior of the stern, the littered deck. Men lying there had been stricken before they had time to get into their suits. On the outside, forward, I saw Grantline come rounding the bow, towing a figure and heading for another. On the outside of the bow peak, a group of others were perched, gesticulating for help. I started that way, then I saw another and nearer figure in a power suit heading for them. I swung back. There were two figures on the outside of the underhull whom I could more quickly reach. Inverted flies. Their feet were on the keel. 
they stooped and waved toward me. I took a swoop. Passing close down the hull, my rocket stream struck the hull plates and gave me sudden downward velocity. I shot down, out past the keel. And again I saw the enemy ship. She hung poised, no more than two miles away, and as I looped over, with all the black, star-strewn firmament in a dizzy whirl, the great moon disk, first above and then below me, I saw the bow beam of the enemy swinging. It came to the Kamatara, and there it clung. I had gone perhaps fifty feet below the keel with my dive when I righted. I was mounting. I saw the opalescent ten-foot circle of the beam moving along the Kamatara hull. It seemed to do no damage, then suddenly it darted down and clung to me. I felt nothing save the impact of a gentle push, something shoving with a ponderable force against me. I saw the Kamatara receding, the heavens swinging as I turned over. The red disk of the distant earth swooped. The moon's surface momentarily seemed rotating and lifting above me. I was helpless, rolling, then whirling end over end. Then again I steadied. The beam was gone from me. I saw the Kamatara a full mile away from me. The enemy ship was again in motion, moving toward me and between the Kamatara and the earth. And the beam was steady upon the Kamatara's midsection. The Kamatara had a new velocity now. I could not miss it. She was dwindling rapidly in visual size. Relative to me, she was receding, falling upon the moon. More than that, she was being pushed downward by the repulsive force of the strange enemy beam upon her. I stared as with all the little dots which were our men around and upon her, she went down into the void. I found myself presently alone up here, with the enemy ship hovering nearby. Its maneuvering to thrust the wrecked Kamatara toward the moon had brought it within a mile of me. The bow beam was still on the Kamatara, and then abruptly it vanished. The Kamatara had almost dwindled beyond the sight of my unaided vision. By chance, undoubtedly, the beam had fallen upon me and thrust me from the wreck. I was alone up here now with the enemy, but they may not have noticed me or cared. I found my power mechanism intact. I turned it on. Slowly, like a log in water, I began moving away. A minute, five minutes. The Kamatara was lost. Grantline, all the men, were lost. With that added downward thrust, they could never free themselves from the falling wreck. I was jerked out of my thoughts by the sight of an oncoming red blob. Something was coming from the enemy ship, red with the sunlight and earthlight, silvered by the moon and the stars. It took form. It was a disk, another of those cursed whirling disks sent to annihilate me. Then, when it was a quarter of a mile away, I saw that it was a disk which was turning slowly. Rocket radiances came from its rotating circumference. It came sailing directly at me so swiftly that my own velocity was futile. Another minute and I was caught. 
I saw that the disc was some fifteen feet in diameter, and that it bulged, so that within its convex floor and ceiling was a space of several feet. I cut off my power, and with pounding heart lay waiting. The spacesuit had no weapons for equipment save a knife hung in the belt. I drew it out, held it in my gloved fingers. The disc sailed upon its level, vertical axis. Its rotation slowed, I saw little windows set around its convex middle. It came up and bumped me with its metal side. I kicked away, shoved off. Shapes were moving in a dim interior light behind the port panes. Little hand beams of radiance darted out. They seemed to seize me, draw me. I found myself glued helplessly to the convex outer surface of the disk. The rotation gathered speed again, but I looked presently only at the gleaming surface to which I was pinned. Had I been a metal bar upon the horns of an electromagnet, I could not have been more helpless. An interval passed. With the contact plate of my fingers against this hull, it seemed that I could hear voices within, strange, indistinguishable words. I twisted, but could not see into the port. Again the rotation was slowing. The near shape of the enemy vessel swung close and past, and again and again I saw that we were over it, dropping down into the wide black opening of the funnel top. It yawned presently like a great black tunnel into which we fell. The jar of landing knocked me loose, and no doubt the attraction radiance also released me. I fell another space bounced up and sank back. I thought that something like a sliding port door closed over me. And then, in the dimness, figures were gripping me. I lashed and struck, but the knife was wrenched away. I was a prisoner in a pressure port of the enemy's ship. End of Chapter 7